Welcome to Strength for the Journey from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu at Ko'olau. Our Hope Restored Sermon Series continues. Today's sermon centers around one key word. The scripture reading is from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. Here's First Pres Assistant Pastor Steve Page. In case you missed it uh, from before, my name is Stephen, one of the pastors on staff, and it's my honor to bring you the Word of God today. So in the honor of God's Word, we're all going to stand and, and listen to the Word of God as I read out of Mark 12, and this is Jesus in the temple area during Passover week, and he encounters a teacher of the law, a scribe as they call him sometimes, and it goes like this. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to the man, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys chuckle at that. Maybe there's a little jersey in there. Sorry, you can sit down. You can sit down. That's how I would have heard it anyway. Well, today, today we continue our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, and the series is called Hope Restored. And by our scripture reading today, you heard that a great deal of how hope is restored in our world is deeply connected to this issue of love. Now, you may find this uh, odd to hear, but when it comes uh, to issues like love, it is surprisingly very difficult to preach on. And I say that because it's so easy to descend in some kind of, you know, kind of useless bumper sticker cliches or some inane sentimentality or unrealistic idealism or whatever. But as you just heard, as I was reading, love is anything but inane, is anything but idealistic. It is the central purpose of human existence. It is the greatest act to do the greatest good to the greatest amount of people in this very broken world. And it will require every bit of our lives, as Jesus said, to love God and to love others. It will require all of me. Now, in our setting today, as I mentioned, Jesus is in the temple during Passover week, and it's a few days before he's crucified, and during that time, these Jewish religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to snare him and to say something that will lead to his demise. And that's why we read in verse 28, where the scribe or teacher of the law heard them debating, and that's them are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the chief priests, and other religious leaders debating with Jesus. But he was really impressed by Jesus' answers to these conniving leaders, and the man was so impressed that he, I think he really just genuinely wants to hear Christ's opinion about the question that is very commonly debated in those days among rabbis. It's a very common question they debated. Of all the commandments, and they thought there was around 613 commandments, of all these commandments, which one is the greatest? In other words, what really is the central aim of what life is all about? Interesting, Jesus doesn't just say one command. He actually says two commands, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. For Jesus, these become two sides of the same coin. They're completely interwoven. 
Now, the two-sided coin has become known throughout the, the millennials of, of uh, a couple of millenniums of uh, Christianity as the great commandment. So let's first look at the first, uh, let's look at the first side of the coin here. We read in verse 29 and 30 where Jesus says, the most important commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Now, obviously, when you read this, the first thing that jumps out of these verses is that highly repetitive use of the word all. Why is all emphasized so strongly in, 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 in this verse here? Well, how many of you have ever heard of the singer John Legend? Ever hear John Legend? Raise your hand if you've heard of John Legend. The rest of you really need to turn your radio on, please, okay? This guy's really famous. He's a great singer-songwriter. And one of his big, big hits is a song that he wrote for his wife, and it's called All of Me. It's such a beautiful song. Ladies, how would you like it if your husband wrote that for you, huh? Oh, yeah. Hint, hint, guys. All right, get the hint. Now, um... The thing is, this song was gigantically successful. And just one YouTube I was looking at had 1.4 billion hits and rising, okay? And it came out like several years ago. Now, part of the reason for its massive success was definitely that sweet, sweet tune. But I think the biggest, the biggest part of the success was the lyrics, you know, your perfect imperfections. What a way to put that, right? It's not only poetic, but this song also gets at what what really makes love work. The secret ingredient, so to speak, is found yet again in that word all. Like Jesus' great commandment, the word all for John Legend holds a pretty important place in his relationship with his wife. Why is that? Well, think of it like this. What if he's saying this? Most of me more or less loves all of you. Okay. Does that have the same heart-soaring impact in your life there? Okay. What does that little notion of that little word, all, oh, how does it change the impact of the entire song? It's like when I do weddings, I don't say to the spouse, hey, Bill, do you more or less take Susan to be your lawfully wedded wife? Will you pretty much take care of her as long as you both? No, you don't say that. Would you want me to say it at your wedding? There's no way you want me to say that. Why not? Because we all know that no significant relationship can thrive and flourish if the folks in that relationship are not fully committed. You know, even in SWAT team relationships, you got to be pretty fully committed. Can you imagine Pete going up to that house with the guy with the gun, and he hears his men behind him saying, hey, Pete, don't sweat it. We're more or less with you. (laughs) It don't work. It doesn't work, okay? My point is, any important relationship, any loving, intimate relationship requires what? Full devotion. Why? In order for it to be healthy and vibrant and joyful and long-lasting. That's why I think God puts that there. You see, anything less than all of me is damaging. It's hurtful and it's corrosive to relationship. And that's why I think God put that there in the terms that he did. Not just to lay a big burden on you, but so that there can be real, long-lasting vibrancy and real joy in our relationship with him and with other people as well. Now, before I move on, I'm be really clear about something here, okay? I'm not saying, you know, by being fully devoted and committed and all, and all of me and all that, I'm not saying, like, get yourself really psyched up to be devoted, you know? That, that's not gonna work, you know? I'm not saying, you know, force yourself to stay devoted by your own grit and determination. If you're trying to do that, good luck with that. It's not gonna work. 
Look, you're saved and you're loved by grace. And you stay saved and you stay loved by grace. That the force of my sheer will will never muster enough spiritual power to really love God and love my neighbor as God intended. We all need God's grace and God's power if we're going to live into these commands. As John put it in 1 John 4, 19, he says, we love because he first loved us. In other words, his love set off a chain reaction in us. It gave us a firm foundation upon which we can stand, which now we can reach out and hang with and stick with people to love on them. And this leads me to the second side of the great commandment coin, that is to love our neighbor. Now, first of all, I want you to think about why would Jesus include this particular law to stick in there with the, with the uh, uh, love God with all, everything? Why would he particularly choose that? Why not choose another one? Like, there's a lot of good ones out there, like honor your mother and father. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't steal. I mean, these are good laws. Why did I put them in there? You got to consider something in here. Jesus was more than just a great religious figure. He is a psychological relational and spiritual genius. He's a really smart person. And what he does in us and what he forges in us is done because it is the smartest thing to bring about in our lives. See, Jesus doesn't just give his directives in some kind of religious vacuum. He doesn't arbitrarily lay things out. He's not sitting there one day like, okay, what's a good thing to put with this? Let's see, let's see. Oh yeah, I love your neighbor. That's a good one. I'll throw that out there. This isn't arbitrary. He knows the human condition. He created the human condition. He knows what it takes socially and emotionally and relationally and psychologically for it to thrive and for it to live into the highest levels of humanity. And he also knows what will change and blow up the human condition into a million pieces. And development in sciences have really helped us understand why Jesus may have added that particular commandment to the great commandment. The short of it is this. We are hardwired biologically, neurologically, and I believe we're neurologically wired by God, to function best, to thrive, to flourish in loving relationships. Because if we don't have them, if we don't live by how we are hardwired, we go a little haywire. Let me show you what I mean. You know, scientists have discovered that we, uh, how we experience uh, loving attentiveness early on in our life is crucial to our long-term sense of worth and value and confidence and emotional stability and crucial to the way we will eventually relate to other people throughout our lives. The video I'm about to show you discusses what is called the still face experiment. Now, in this experiment, you're going to see a mother with her infant, and they're joyfully interacting with each other. It's really sweet. But then for a brief, just a brief little while, the mom keeps her face, face totally still, and she shows no emotional engagement with the child. Love basically is cut off. As you watch this, let God speak to you about its implications to the soul. In this still face experiment, what the mother did was she sits down and she's playing with her baby who's about a year of age. I'm like a girl. Oh. And she gives a greeting to the baby. The baby gives a greeting back to her. Yeah. This baby starts pointing at different places in the world and the mother's trying to engage her and play with her. They're working to coordinate their emotions and their intentions, what they want to do in the world. And that's really what the baby is used to. And then we ask the mother, 
to not respond to the baby. The baby very quickly picks up on this and then she uses all of her abilities to try and get the mother back. She smiles at the mother, she points because she's used to the mother looking where she points. The baby puts both hands up in front of her and says, what's happening here? She makes that screechy sound at the mother, like, come on, why aren't we doing this? Even in this two minutes when they don't get the normal reaction, they react with negative emotions, they turn away, they feel the stress of it, they actually may lose control of their posture because of the stress that they're experiencing. Oh yeah, powerful little film, isn't it? You know, what a neat experiment, but it really speaks, I wish I could elaborate a lot on what this has to say, but let me just say a few things. Notice how when the mother is not emotionally responsive or lovingly engaged with the baby, the baby goes a little haywire. Why? Because again, she is hardwired neurologically by God to experience loving responses, emotional engagement from her caregiver, from her nurturer, from the people that are supposed to love her. And let me just put it plainly, folks, from the cradle to the grave, this is one of our most basic needs as human beings. Now imagine, imagine if that still face, that non-responsive, no love situation was chronic in someone's life growing up. Imagine their life emotionally, their emotional world would never know psychological rest. It would not know trust. It would not know safety. It would not know security and intimacy and courage to explore the world. In other words, our souls would not know well the essential qualities and characteristics that are so crucial to live a healthy and vibrant life. And do you know what can arise when we experience chronically what that baby experienced for a short time? Things arise in our life like perfectionism performance issues, people-pleasing, deep hatred or resentments and anger, and especially shame. See, shame is that inner conviction that we are defective, we are deficient, we are rejectable and unlovable. That's what the human brain will feel when it experiences too much of that. But the good news is the kind of trauma that doesn't, this doesn't have to be permanent and, and permanently damage people. Notice that when the mother re-engages the child again, the child gets better and it goes back to that safe place, you see? So, so here's the thing. When we Christians consistently love on others and emotionally engage with them, people who may not have been very loved too well in their life, we too can bring enormous soulful and emotional healing to the brokenness of their lives and Trust me, folks, so many people suffer, and we cover it, but we suffer like that little child suffers. I don't know if you ever read this, but the Surgeon General of the United States from 2014 to 2017, a guy named Dr. Vivek Murthy, he said this. When I was practicing medicine up in Boston, people often asked me, what's the most common illness you see? And I would tell them it wasn't heart disease, it wasn't cancer, it was loneliness and isolation. Now, that may sound odd as an illness, 
when they ask, what illness do you see? But he's right on tack. This is going to sound odd, but social isolation is as significant to our mortality, to our dying, as smoking, high blood pressure, obesity, high cholesterol, and lack of physical exercise. See, I bring all this science in because I truly believe that beneath Christ's directives, there are very real biological, sociological, psychological realities that he considers. Again, he's not arbitrary with his commands. Reality is, without loving relationships of the kind that Jesus desires, people suffer. People suffer emotionally. They suffer soulfully. They suffer relationally. And science tells us they even suffer physically. And it brings a a shorter lifespan when people are isolated and unloved. Now, we are inherently inadequate to live life to the full by ourselves. I don't care what the American culture preaches. We cannot live well by ourselves. We need others in our journey to become what God intended. Now, I should probably lay out, at least for a little bit, I know this might be frustrating because I'm not going to elaborate too much, but some kind of definition of love because we can get all weird about what that might mean. Now, of course, the full meaning of the word love, kid, we could fill this room from floor to ceiling with all kinds of descriptions of it, right? But at at the risk of sounding a little reductionist, let me give you at least a little bit of something of what we can think that love might do. First of all, I want to say that love is not necessarily having a really strong emotion towards someone. Hey, it might be that. You can have that, but it doesn't have to be that. At the very least, and I thank a lot of theologians for helping me with this, at the very least, love is an unconditional value and regard for someone that motivates and shapes our behavior, that motivates and shapes our behavior to help that person become what God desires, what God intends whether they're responsive to your love or not. Now notice that it's not just about feelings towards someone, but having a a real deep divine regard and value of someone so that we're prompted to action. It's not like, oh, I just, I feel pity. I feel something. No, it's to prompt us to action on their behalf, like I said, regardless of their response, so that they can experience God's best. Now in terms of how to live this out, my gosh, there's a zillion ways to live that out. But my point is simply this. If we don't begin our how-tos in loving our neighbor, okay, if we don't begin with doing all we can to see and value and regard others as God does, then we will get stuck focusing in on their sins. And there'll be a bunch of them, and we're going to miss the mark of loving our neighbor. I'm reminded of the words by Christian writer, philosopher Dallas Willard when he said this, our relations to others cannot be right unless we see those others in their relation to God. Even in their ruined condition, a human being is regarded by God as something immensely worth saving. Sin never makes us worthless, only lost. Notice that to love your neighbor well starts with seeing them in their relation, not to you, but to God. Not primarily see others in their relation to their political stances, or their nationality, or ethnicity, or gender, or religion, but in their relation to God, vis-a-vis, in in his value of them. And that relation to God always imparts to people an immense worth, as Willard says. Look, here's the reality. People are not always good. And if I can be honest, sometimes they're mostly lousy. But they are always sacred. And that little fact changes everything. 
And let me be honest, people who have come through our church doors, who cross our paths in the everyday world, are often mixed up, muddled up, and maybe a little more than sinful. But never once, never once has anyone walked through those doors or came to your business or sat next to you in your classroom that was not utterly sacred. Not that they've never sinned or maybe not that they've ever done, uh, not done evil. Maybe they have. But they are in every moment sacred to God. And that's our starting point on how to love our neighbor. If we forget this, it becomes so easy to, to slide into what I call a Tinder version of loving your neighbor. Do you know what Tinder is? You got, so some of you know, you guys... You gotta be hipsters here, guys. You gotta know what Tinder is. Right, real quick, just for the uninitiated. Okay, it's, it's a phone app. It's, it's a dating app. Basically what happens is you get a bunch of pictures of people that you can choose to, to hook up with, connect to, date, or whatever it is. You get the picture, and you can swipe left, nah, 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 nah. Oh, yeah. Okay? And the ones that you sli- swipe right, swipe left, no, swipe right. I'm doing it your way. Um, you swipe right. And that, then your picture goes to that person, and they get to decide with you. Mm, swipe left, swipe right, I don't know. Isn't that terrible? It's just a terrible way to date, you know what I mean? At least for me, I just, I, that's crazy. But I use this metaphor in this way because we Christians can do a little tinder when it comes to our neighbor. Swiping left on most folks who, for whatever reason, we just take little interest in them. Little interest in praying for them, talking to them, having a conversation with them, loving on them. Swipe left. So let me ask you something, though, if you think, like, well, what's the big deal? What if I, as a pastor, started to do that with people who came through our doors? What are, you know, where, where I started to swipe left on most, on most people, and I only swiped right on some folks because they were easy for me to love. What would my ministry be like? How long would you keep me as a pastor? If I did that, what would church become? What if I stood there at the door and as people are going in and out, I'm going, yeah, you, you, uh, oh, heck no. You know, can you imagine if I did that? Can you imagine if I did that? That doesn't even sound close to okay for a pastor, does it? Now, if I can be honest here for a second, everyone knows that people on this side of the pulpit cannot swipe left, ever. We don't have that choice. It's true, right? Mm hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but if I can be honest here for a second, what about people on the other side of this pulpit? Do different rules apply for folks on that side of the pulpit? Do folks on that side of the pulpit get to swipe left when they feel like it? If so, why would we believe that? And I know I'm making kind of a hard point here, but I want to bring this up because as much as we might try on this side of the pulpit to to bring about God's best people in this world, it will be largely people on that side of the pulpit that will bring about God's intention for this planet and change it as he intended it to be. Let me share with you an example of a guy in our community who's not a pastor, but he really does love others in a way that Jesus intended, like the way we've been talking about here this morning. Okay, uh, I'm not going to mention any names, but his initials are Shane Millard. Now, (laughs) Shane Shane owns and operates a medical clinic called Braun Urgent Care in Kailua. He has about 13 staff people. And when I talk about it, I ask him, I said, you know, how do you go about your work as a man of God? What do you do? And he has this awesome holistic approach on loving on people. He says, you know, if patients are are facing chronic disease or a life-ending illness, he knows they're, inside he knows they're dealing with the question of, oh my gosh, how am I going to live with this? 
And so he intentionally brings up the idea that the illness is now longer, it's no longer just physical. He says to them, you know, medically, and I'm quoting him here, medically we can go about as far as we can go. And I can see how things are affecting you emotionally and spiritually. So how can we lift your quality of life emotionally and relationally and soulfully in this difficult season for you? Isn't that such a loving approach? You know, don't you think people feel deeply loved and cared for because he said those things to his, to his patients? And sometimes if he notices a cross, he'll ask what church they go to. You know, do they have support from that church? If they don't believe in God or if they don't have support, he'll ask this great question. He'll, he's just so bold. And he says, well, can I ask you this? Where will you find hope then in the midst of your illness? Where will you find joy for your future now that this is with you in your life? And you know what most people that he says, oh, they go, that's a great question. I really don't know. I got to think about that. You see how he lovingly gets people to go into deeper thoughts and to consider their life, lovingly so. And he says, look, I try to speak spiritual wisdom without coming across as preaching to them. They don't come to me for preaching, he said, but they come to me to feel better. So I talk about what better includes. And then he sometimes says, look, I'm not asking you to believe in my faith, but you know what? you may want to consider it for your life at this point. Now, other times he'll lead a patient to, in, in, in prayer. He says, yeah, I don't give them this like big, long 15-minute prayer. I just pray very briefly for them. Now, admittedly, he says people, some people just blow them off, you know, but others don't. Some, some patients have even gotten baptized. Some people have gone to church. And, and he says he has these kinds of, kind of conversations, not once in a blue moon. He says he does it several times a week. It's better than what I do. That's awesome. It really is. And let me be clear, these are not evangelism tricks that he uses to kind of weasel his way into some kind of spiritual conversation. He is simply attentive to the divine value in these people, whether they're Christian or not. He is attentive. He is attentive to their emotional state, their psychological state, their relational state, as well as the, where they put their spiritual hope. In other words, he really tries to bring about God's best in each area of their life. Now, it sounds great, but wait, there's more, believe it or not. He also tries to consider the whole life of his staff. He says, and this is what I tell them that I want them to prioritize in their life in this order. I want them to keep their spiritual lives in order, their family lives in order, their personal lives are in order, and then their working lives in order. And he literally tells his staff, I want to be fourth on your list, not first. In fact, he's very intentional about altering work schedules so they, and he says this, so they can live a better life that God desires for them. Who wants to work for Shea Millard? Raise your hand. You know what I'm saying? Is that awesome? Holy cow, can you imagine if Christians in every workspace operated like that with their clients and their co-workers? Do you think perhaps we see more of God's kingdom come, his will be done on that side of the pulpit as it is in heaven? Do you think we'd see that? Somebody say amen. amen. <laughs> All right. So how do we gently leave this sermon here? <laughs> it's pretty much impossible, but I'll just, we got to wrap it up here. What is God saying to you this morning? What is he saying? If you're in that place of life where you really need the hope of Jesus in your life, I really want to ask you to invite him into your life, heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, on December 3rd, 1981, someone preached the great commandment to me. I was 21 years old, and it changed my life completely. I was a lying, thieving, 
drug-using punk. And when I finally got a hold of the idea to not play around with God, but to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, he changed me to the core. And he gave me you. What a prize, huh? <laughs> now, <laughs> we'll edit that out of the video. All right, yeah. Anyway, I should just shut up and let God talk to you. Just, just close your eyes for a second. What is God saying to you this morning? Just be with that for a few moments in silence. Anyway, I know you've been here a long time. Thank you for hanging in there. Again, you know, we're going to have prayer warriors to my right and over there to, by the angels to the left. If you want prayer this morning, please come up. And again, if you were like me when I was 21 years old and you've been dancing around with God and it's time to do business, do so today. Don't let another day go by. Give your life, heart, soul, mind, and strength to Jesus Christ. And while the children quietly exit the stage, if you're able, please stand as I give the final blessing. <laughs> These guys are too cute. <laughs> Good job, everybody. <laughs> All right, receive this blessing. May the Lord God, who loves you with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, give you a robust, and joy-filled life this Christmas. May you be filled with his spirit and may you become his hands, his arms, his ears, his words to the neighbors that are broken and suffering. When we see people with God's eyes, we can change their lives and one by one, we can change the world. If you'd like to hear this sermon again, you can listen to and download this and other sermons from the First Prez website, fpchawaii.org. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Join us at one of our worship services on campus at 45550 Kiona Ole Road, Kaneohe, Hawaii, 96744. We meet Sunday mornings at 8, 930, and 1111. Follow First Prez on Twitter and Facebook. Download that brand new First Prez app, Watch First Press Sermon videos on our website and on Facebook. And if you need more, you can call us at 808-532-1111. For Pastor Dan Chan and the entire staff at First Press, I'm Michael Shishido. Until next time, Merry Christmas, God bless you, and thank you for listening. Strength for the Journey is copyright 2018 and produced by the Media Ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu at Ko'olau.